When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Do you remember when you were back in like elementary school and your class would take a, a field trip to a museum or someplace like that and you had to get a permission slip signed by your mom or dad? It was like the golden ticket. It was a license to voyage beyond the normal confines of the classroom or even the playground. I remember how good it felt, how empowering to have that signed permission slip and be able to go on that excursion to some interesting and exciting place. I think we could all relate to that, right? Flash forward a few decades, and it seems like many of us in the aquarium hobby are still looking for a permission slip, albeit a metaphorical one, to sort of venture outside of the boundaries of what is considered acceptable or normal aquarium practice. Now, I routinely receive emails from fellow hobbyists asking me if it's okay to attempt certain things in a botanical-style aquarium. It's interesting and a bit funny that people ask me these questions as if I'm some authority figure who needs to sign off on everyone's botanical style aquarium experiments. I'm not, of course. However, I am honored to be considered as a source of advice for this kind of stuff. Like many of you, I've played with this stuff for many years and I've had a lot of experiences, mostly good, but some not so good with these types of experiments. And it's not like me or anyone else has to give you permission to go for it. On the other hand, I'm proud that both myself and many members of our community, that's you, are boldly trying some new ideas that certainly fly in the face of conventional aquarium wisdom and practice and have yielded interesting benefits for our fishes. And humans being humans, we like the approval of our peers to try stuff previously viewed as taboo. I get that. I thought it might be fun to look at some of the things that we as hobbyists previously felt a bit scared to attempt, but now, thanks to the hard work of our community, feel that we collectively now have permission to do. Let's go right to them. Let's start with this one. Fungal growths and biofilms are okay to have in your aquarium. Yeah, the sight of, you know, the the idea of seeing these stringy, gooey-looking growths on our leaves and botanicals and wood can certainly cause concern for many hobbyists. The rapidity with which it grows and proliferates can be downright frightening for the uninformed hobbyists. A century of aquarium hobby practice and thought leadership by experts has told us this is really bad. Get it out, like, immediately. Yet... This is a mandate that we've followed dutifully for generations without thinking about the upsides to this stuff. We have to look at how these growths occur and benefit aquatic habitats in nature. When leaves enter tropical streams and other bodies of water, fungal colonization causes leaves to increase nitrogen content because of the fungal biomass and leaf maceration, in other words, starts breaking them up. This is known by aquatic ecologists to be evidence of microbial colonization. There's many different stages in this process, starting with the leaching of materials from the cells of the botanicals and leaves during the initial submersion, in which soluble carbon compounds are liberated in the process. A rapid release of phosphorus accompanies this leaching. Of course, the process ultimately leads to the physical breakdown and or fragmentation of the leaves and botanicals into smaller pieces, which poses a larger, you know, possess a larger amount of surface area uh, for microbial attachment. And extensive ecological studies have been done, which in regards to leaf litter and have yielded a lot of information about this process. 
the fungi known as aquatic hyphomycetes, which boy did I butcher that name. It's hyphomycetes, actually. I keep pronouncing. I always say that the wrong way. I even did that back in college. Go figure. Anyway, they're the, they're the organisms that cause leaf maceration. And as little in two to three weeks, as much as 15% of the you know, decomposing material can be macerated. That's pretty incredible. And that's something that's really interesting because it reduces some of the net biomass in these streams. And according to one study I found, this can happen very, very rapidly, sometimes even less than two or three weeks. Now, sure, there could be a downside to having all this fungal growth in your aquarium. And it has to do both with the prolific nature of fungi and the impatience of us as hobbyists. We need to consider the fact that fungal colonization facilitates the access of invertebrates to the energy trapped in the deciduous leaves and other botanical materials found in this aquatic environment. In other words, the bacteria and fungi that decompose decaying plant material in turn consume dissolved oxygen for respiration during this process of decomposition and breakdown. That's why adding too much botanical material too quickly to an aquarium, an existing aquarium, can create a problem for the fishes. A rapid decrease in dissolved oxygen in a small body of water can be disastrous, or at the very least, leave fishes gasping at the surface. And of course, that's why we tell you to deploy massive amounts of patience and to go slowly when adding botanicals to an established aquarium. Of course, that's the worst case scenario. Precipitated by us as impatient hobbyists by adding too much stuff to an established aquarium too quickly. It's common sense. However, when we employ patients and allow fungal growth and biofilm to grow and proliferate and eventually run their course, we can benefit our aquariums in ways previous generations of hobbyists haven't even considered. These growths serve as a medium upon which other food sources accumulate and reproduce. In the wild, tropical, leaf-litter-fueled ecosystems that we love so much, creatures like hydrocenes, which are mites, and insects, and you know, like, like bloodworms, chy chironomids, and copepods, like daphnia and so forth, are the dominant fauna that fishes and you know tend to feed on these organisms feed directly in the biofilms the fungal growths and the leaves themselves gut content analysis of fishes which inhabit leaf litter and habitat the habitats reveals a lot of interesting stuff about what they consume for one thing in addition to the you know those organisms they'll eat organic detritus fungal growths and undefined plant materials this is interesting to contemplate when we consider what to feed our fishes in the aquarium isn't it again just think about it these life forms, both plant, tonic, and insect, tend to feed off the leaf litter itself, as well as fungi and bacteria present in them as they decompose, just like the fishes that are found there. And of course, this interconnectivity between various levels of life forms creates the basics of what we call a food web. Food webs are defined as a system of interlocking and interdependent food chains. They're fascinating constructs in nature. The leaf litter bed is a surprisingly dynamic and one might even say rich little benthic biotope contained within the otherwise impoverished black waters which surround it. And as we've discussed before on these pages, it should come as no surprise that a large and surprisingly diverse assemblage of fishes make their home within and closely adjacent to these leaf litter beds. These are little food oases in areas that are otherwise largely devoid of food. Works the same way in our aquariums, of course. Interesting stuff. So that brings me to my second idea that we have permission to play with that we didn't previously. How about allowing botanicals and leaves to fully break down in the aquarium? As we've discussed for years here, leaving leaves and botanicals in our aquariums to fully decompose does not have a detrimental impact on water quality and otherwise well-managed systems. Pieces of leaves and botanicals fall to the bottom of the aquarium and form a bed of detritus. Yes, I said detritus. 
In the aquarium world, as you know, we've long vilified this stuff as a destroyer of water quality, as an impediment to successful aquariums and all that kind of stuff. And the reality is that in a well-managed aquarium, detritus is actually an essential food source for many organisms and plants. Like anything else in a closed system, if it's not allowed to accumulate unchecked to the point of creating a real mess in the tank, I personally believe that its benefits for the animals that we keep far outweigh any perceived disadvantages of having it present. I know, I know, uneaten food and fish shit accumulated in a closed system can be problematic, if overall husbandry issues, of course, are not attended to. I know that it can decompose, it can overwhelm the biological filtration of the capacity of the tank if left unchecked, and that can lead to smelly, dirty-looking aquariums with diminished water quality. I know that. You know that. In fact, pretty much everyone in the freaking hobby knows that. That's not the issue, really. The issue is that we as hobby have sort of heaped detritus into this catch-all descriptor, which has an overall bad connotation to it. Like, anything that's allowed to break down in the tank and accumulate is bad. I'm not buying it. Why is this necessarily a bad thing? Well, I mean, you check out the definition of detritus, which is dead particulate organic matter, typically including the bodies or fragments of dead organisms as well as fecal material. Detritus is typically colonized by communities of microorganisms, which acts to decompose or remineralize the material. I mean, even in that above definition that I just gave you, there's a part about being colonized by communities of microorganisms, which act to decompose or remineralize. Hmm. It's being processed, utilized. What do these microorganisms do with it? They eat it. They render it inert. And in the process, they contribute to the biological diversity and arguably even the stability of the system. Some of them are utilized as food by other creatures, which is really important in a closed system, I should think. It's not all bad, right? And it's fueled by stuff like decomposing leaves and botanicals. So yeah, I let my leaves and botanicals stay in my aquariums until they completely break down, only removing them if they become an annoyance, like if every time a fish moves, a cloud of crap gets stirred up and you know accumulates in the worst possible places or whatever. But it never gets to that point in my tanks. It's not an excuse for sloppy husbandry or neglecting the removal of offensive materials. However, it is a sort of acceptance of the fact that stuff happens in nature and in aquariums and that many of these things are simply not worth getting upset about. I mean, if you have an aquarium with brown water and substrate dominated by decomposing leaves and softening botanicals, it really shouldn't come as any surprise to you, right? Decomposition is not something to freak out about. Rather, it's something to celebrate. Life in all of its diversity and beauty still needs a stage upon which to perform, and you're helping to provide it even with the material changes taking place daily. The real key here is that pace and an understanding that the materials that we add need to be added and replaced at a pace that makes sense for your specific system. An understanding that you'll have a front row seat to natural processes of decomposition, transformation, decay, all those kind of things, and accepting that they're part of the beauty of this style of aquarium, just like they are in nature. That's the big mental shift. And that leads me to another one of the mental shifts we had, we've made that, that we all permission to play with now. Mixing botanical materials into your substrate. We've been talking about the idea of substrate enrichment and utilizing alternative materials to create active botanical substrates in the aquarium for, I don't know, five years plus now. We've been doing this ourselves for a long time with nothing but good results. One of the things that many hobbyists ponder when we contemplate creating substrates consisting of leaves and sand and other botanical materials is the buildup of hydrogen sulfide, CO2, and other undesirable compounds within the substrate. I understand that. It does make sense if you have a large amount of decomposing material in an aquarium that some of these compounds are going to accumulate in a healthy, active substrate. Now, the big boogeyman that we all seem to zero in on in our sum of all fair scenarios is hydrogen sulfide. 
which results from bacterial breakdown of organic matter in the total absence of oxygen. Let's think about this for a second. In a botanical bed with materials placed on the substrate or loosely mixed on the top layers, will it all pack down enough to the point where there's a complete lack of oxygen and we develop a significant amount of this reviled compound in our tanks? I think that we're more likely to see some oxygen in this layer of materials, and I can't help but speculate, and it is just speculation, that the actual that actual denitrification or nitrate reduction, which lowers nitrates while producing free nitrogen, might actually be what's occurring in a deep bed of botanical material or bed of botanical material mixed with sand. And it's certainly possible to have denitrification without dangerous hydrogen sulfide levels. As long as even small amounts of oxygen and nitrates can penetrate into the substrate, this won't become an issue for most systems. In fact, I have yet to see a botanical style aquarium where the materials become so compacted as to appear to have no circulation whatsoever within the botanical layer. I just haven't, and I doubt you have either. Now, I base this on visual inspection of numerous tanks and the basic chemical tests I've run on my aquarium systems under a variety of circumstances. This, the understanding that substrate in the aquarium can be more than just sand and gravel, and indeed should be in many circumstances, is to me one of the great advances in the hobby. When we consider that almost all aquatic habitats are influenced by the surrounding terrestrial environments, it's simply head-scratching to me that we haven't played with this idea for years and years and years in the aquarium hobby. And that brings me to the final one that I'm going to touch on. You can actually have tinted, turbid water without it being dirty. In the aquarium hobby, uh, at you know large, we tend to see colored water or water with some turbidity to it and think, oh, it's dirty. It's, again, head-scratching to me how this came to be. And it's a huge thing when we hear criticisms and concerns from other parts of the aquarium world about our work. There's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding at play here, and a lot of commentary from people who just don't understand this stuff all that well. And of course, this is where we need to separate two factors. Turbidity, generally referred to as cloudiness, and color are generally separate issues for most hobbyists, but they seem to cause concern. Cloudiness in particular may be a tip-off to some other issues in the aquarium, and as we all know, cloudiness can usually be caused by a few factors. Uh, number one, improperly clean substrate or decorative materials like driftwood, etc., creating sort of a haze of micro-sized dust particles which float in the water column. Number two, bacterial blooms typically caused by a heavy bioload in an aquarium not capable of handling it, like a new tank with a filter that's not fully established and a full complement of livestock added. We've seen that before. Number three, algal blooms, which can both cloud and color the water, usually caused by excessive nutrients and too much light for a given system. Number four, poor husbandry. The, the, that's the real boogeyman here. Poor husbandry, which results in heavy decomposition and more bacterial blooms and biological waste affecting water clarity. This is, of course, a rather urgent matter to be attended to as there are possible serious consequences to the life in your system. And curiously enough, the remedy for cloudy water in virtually every situation is similar. Water exchanges, the use of chemical filtration media, you know, carbon and stuff like that, reducing the light in the case of algae blooms, and improve husbandry techniques, i.e. better feeding practices, more frequent maintenance, and perhaps, and most important, the passage of time. And of course, population control, not having too many fishes in there. And there's other factors that can affect clarity, like fishes that dig or otherwise disturb the substrate and wood with their grazing activities. But these are not necessarily indicative of husbandry issues. Okay, that was Aquarium Keeping 101 right there. Uh, although we all seem to know this, I keep hearing comments and questions about the color of the water and its relationship to cleanliness in natural botanical-style blackwater systems. I hear this so often that it warrants bringing this up from time to time. Remember, just because the water in a botanical-influenced aquarium is brownish, it doesn't mean that it's of low quality or dirty. 
as we're inclined to say. It simply means that tannins, humic acids, and other substances are leaching into the water, creating a characteristic color that some of us geeks find rather attractive. If you're still concerned, monitor the water quality, perform a nitrate test, look at the health of your animals. What's happening in there? People ask me if a lot of botanicals will create cloudy water in their aquariums, and I have to give the responsible answer. Yes, of course they can. If you place a large quantity of just about anything that can decompose in the water, the potential for cloudy water caused by a bloom of bacteria or algae exists. The reality is if you don't add three pounds of botanicals to your 20-gallon aquarium, you're likely not to see this type of bloom. It's about logic, common sense, and going slowly. Remember, too, that some turbidity in the water, you know, even in a white water or black water system, whatever, is natural, expected, and not always indicative of a problem. In many natural settings, water is chemically perfect, but not entirely crystal clear. And I believe that a lot of what we perceive to be normal in aquarium keeping is based upon artificial standards that we've imposed on ourselves over a century of modern aquarium keeping. Everyone expects water to be as clear and colorless as here. So any deviation from this norm is cause for concern among many hobbyists. In my home aquariums and in many of the really great natural looking botanical blackwater aquariums I see, the water is dark, almost turbid, or even soupy as one of my fellow blackwater aquarium geeks refers to it. You might see the faintest hit of stuff in the water, perhaps a bit of fines from leaves breaking down, some dislodged biofilms, pieces of leaves, etc. Just like in nature. Chemically, it has undetectable nitrate and phosphate, clean by aquarium standards. Sure, by municipal drinking water standards, color and clarity are really important. You see those on your water report that your municipal water district usually sends you from annually. And of course, that can in indicate a number of potential issues, but we're not talking about drinking water here, are we? Turbidity. Sounds like something we want to avoid, right? Sounds dangerous. On the other hand, turbidity is typically defined, uh, as it's typically defined, leaves open the possibility that it's not a negative thing. It's defined as the cloudiness or haziness of a fluid caused by large numbers of individual particles that are generally invisible to the naked eye, similar to smoke in the air. So what am I getting at here? Well, think about a, you know, a body of water like these agapos adjacent to the Rio Negro, as we see in those pictures that Ty Streitman and Mike Tucanardi share with us all the time. This water is, of course, tinted because the dissolved tannins and humic substances that are present due to decaying botanical materials and soil are in the water. And it's also a little bit turbid because of the fine particulate matter from these materials as well. So in summary, without beating the get dead horse again, tinted turbid water and high quality water are not mutually exclusive. You can have these and have excellent water quality. I know because most of my tanks look like that. And I have water quality on par with m most reef systems I've kept over the years. In the end, you just don't need my permission or anyone to try new things, to push the boundaries into unconventional practices. The natural botanical style aquarium is so interesting to me because it offers enormous opportunity to execute aquariums based on the function of natural habitats. Functions which, although they look different than anything we've done before, may just unlock the keys to many new aquarium discoveries. What I can promise you in 2021 and beyond is that we'll continue to provide products, ideas, and inspiration to give you the tools that you need and hopefully the confidence to move forward boldly to unlock all sorts of exciting aquarium-relating things. So you have my permission to have fun. Stay excited, stay bold, stay creative, stay curious, stay intrigued, stay with us, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tent and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tent.